Within the depths of a flyover state ghost town lies a decrepit cinema palace, oh so recently demolished. Past the concrete rubble, bristling with rusting spars of rebar. Beyond the faded, weed-filled parking lot bordering the river choked with industrial pollution, a secret society has been forcibly assembled. To scrutinize a film rumored to drive its viewers to dissolution and madness. Draw closer, dear listener. Let your trembling ears sup upon the eldritch knowledge of the Cinemania Society. Let's just bypass all of the chant and get this thing done. So, everyone uh, accounted for. Daniel Ho! Check. Hmm, I found the booze. Space Ahoy! Mm -hmm. I'm here, I'm here. I don't know why I have to carry the sack, though. He's staying in the sack till he learns his lesson, and you're carrying it till you learn yours. Oh, yes, madam. Uh, how's the weather up there, Zach? Ha, ha, very funny. Any luck finding pants the size of a bus? Uh, how, how long is this going to last, anyway? Um, I'd say another day or so. I mean, if you need anything off a really high shelf, now's the time. Well, I suppose we did hold a conclave, even if it was against all regulations, so and we'd better duress. finish things off properly. Time for judgment. I always want to say, it's judgment time, but I never know whether to go with the Sylvester Stallone version or the Carl Urban version. Well, Carl the Carl Urban. Urban one is the superior one, but, you know, the Stallone one is definitely... Is definitely funny. the funnier one. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So cool. I'll kick us off. <clears throat> All right. So uh, given the recent uh, behavior, uh, outlandish behavior of our of our brother Andy, pursuant to um, you know uh, the charter of our chapter, uh, chapter three, subclause two a about um, betrayal in the first. Uh, I guess it falls to me to be temporary pontifex of presentment as uh, the closest aesthetic bullshit to Brother Andy's. Uh, so let's let's judge this film. Um, I call us to order for final judgments. Uh, Arbiter Alessa, please uh, begin. Oh, uh, yeah. So I guess like I kind of, I mean, obviously. Most paramount being this is undoubtedly guilty in every single count. I mean, I just, it's very, I know we keep shouting subtlety, but yeah, it is very much that. It's uh, very clear what it is. It's very like, uh, look at what capitalism does to you. And this is. Uh, uh, further solidified my resolution to never get into marketing or advertising or any of those in, uh, industries and never touching them with a 10-foot pole. Although, um... Cattle prod. Yeah. <laughs> uh, at least... At least as anything other than an actor, that that's where, like, anything anything beyond just being the actor in that circumstance for advertising. I'm, I'm good. I'm great. Um, there were points where I was like, it, it was kind of towing the line 
of like again like ableist tropes that would be like ooh he has a mental illness but like it kind of reeled it in a little bit more towards I guess um kind of a metaphor for internal change if that makes sense um like it was more about this guy giving in to what capitalism wants you to do. It wants you to exploit people and hurt people for profit. Um, And it was just a matter of giving into that and letting that change you as a person, as you become more cruel and jingoistic. Um, So yeah. And the, the boil, I guess was the, the, the metaphorical vehicle to make that, um, uh, make that all click out of, I guess the aesthetics of we watch weird movies here. This is definitely a really fucking weird movie. Um, although it was coherent, it did have a story that was that, uh, while not very subtle at all, was, uh, quite coherent, um, as opposed to something like, I don't know, time bandits or something like that um but are you on every single time bandits count incoherent huh are you calling time bandits incoherent yeah but. <laughs> uh, in any case this film without a single doubt in my mind is un deniably guilty uh brother ethan your judgment well um i have to say that um i i had this is my first time seeing this film um and i i'm kind of surprised that this is the first time that i've seen this film but it was and um actually i have (laughs) i'm i'm i dig it I, I basically they think of it this way. If they're, I, I, I like just about everything that handmade films has ever done. I mean, well, maybe I should say before it sold, you know, when it was under George Harrison and, um, Dennis O'Brien, uh, everything that handmade films did was just fucking awesome. Nuns on the run. Um, the lock, stock and two <gasps> smoking barrels. Yeah. Ooh. Like, Ooh, I love that one. Yeah. Like, Could somebody somebody please kick the bag? Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, If if there was any film company in the 1980s that would have been willing to take on a story uh, largely consisting of monologues sharply critical of 80s shit capitalist culture, it could only have been handmade films. Because you've got to think about who founded it. Like I said, George Harrison, uh, an ex-Beatle, He's the somebody that Eric Idle described as one of the few morally good people rock and roll has ever produced, um, which says a lot. Um, also, it, it, keep in mind that Eric Idle was the midwife for Handmade Films, um, which was founded to pick up where EMI Films left off and Monty Python's left with Brian after EMI dropped that hot potato. And we have mentioned this in our Time Bandits thing, but it, it keeps just keep that in mind that like. People wanted to market Monty Python because they knew the kids liked it. Um, but once they were starting to do something just a little too spicy, uh, they were like, oh, no, we can't do that. Um, so Eric Idle found George Harrison. And George Harrison was like, OK, no problem. Let's do it. Um, because they met, Idle and Harrison met while sharing a joint in the projection room during a screening of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> talk about so, a meat So cute. Idol knew him. That check that so, checks out. Yeah. Idol took uh, Idol took Dennis O'Brien um, to uh, to meet George Harrison. They took an emergency flight out to L- Los Angeles to Harrison's uh, flat where they were having a party. Um, and uh, basically, anyway, so you remember this. We discussed this at length during the Conclave on Time Bandits. I don't need to recover that. Anyway, um, Handmaid's been responsible for a large number of highly influential films. So Time Bandits, like I said, which we covered. The Long Good Friday, which is, as uh, I think I may have also mentioned at some point in the past, is the quintessential British gangster film. It's the movie that if it did not exist, Guy Ritchie would not have a career. <laughs> Wait, which um, film is this? The Long Good Friday. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen that? Oh, sure. Oh, man. You want to talk about Bob Hoskins? Like I remember, I always thought of Bob Hoskins as uh, as like this is the guy Eddie Valiant from from um, oh, Roger no. Rabbit, and suddenly oh, I'm no. like, oh dude, he's opening throats with broken bottles. Damn! No, 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 no. no. Uh, who framed Roger Rabbit was a departure for him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, but, we can talk about it another time. Bob yeah, yeah. Hoskins, badass. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, but they also did Bruce Robinson's other film with Null and I, which is um, also uh, Richard E. Grant. I think that may have been his screen debut, but like he absolutely just just kills in that. So seeing him more or less replay with Null, but getting to be the lead character and give these long anti-capitalist monologues or I don't know if I'd say. Well, some of the monologues are anti-capitalist, but he, like basically it's made up of almost fully a, a third to almost half of the film is made up of Richard E. Grant ranting at the camera, <laughs> which is fucking awesome. <laughs> this film, I mean, the, the uh, how to get ahead in advertising. So not knowing this existed, loving with Nolan and I to pieces and getting to see Richard Grant chewing up the scenery, uh, you know, and, and just like, like grinding his teeth and sweating through most of the film is hilarious. Um, anyway, so like how to get ahead in advertising came out right at the peak of eighties corporate piracy, which is to say, you know, when, CEOs got the bright idea to start stripping their corporations of their assets, raid their employee pensions, offshore everything in order to pad the bottom line. You know, assholes like General Electric's Jack Welch, the guy who is one of the major sculptors of why the world sucks so hard in the 2020s, but almost nobody has ever heard of him because they've only ever heard of him in terms of like, hey, this guy made General Electric look really good in the 80s. Well, he did it by doing all of those things. And then there are a bunch of people in the the ruling and you know, the business elite ruling classes of the US and and, and the UK looked at him and they're like, oh, I could do that. I'm going to do that. Okay, let's just give it a shot, mate. Um, go check out the episodes of Behind the Bastards about Jack Welch if you want to know more. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> anyway, while the rest of us were watching all of the most iconic movies of the 80s, folks like Bruce Robinson and George Harrison were actually paying attention and trying to use cinema to get the public to break out of its collective episode of hyper-consumerist mass hypnosis. Um, they were really trying to get the public to look at how hard they were getting shafted. They saw the direction things were going. They were trying to say, hey, 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 guys, look, look here. And unfortunately, this movie got buried under titles like, you know, Predator and Total Recall and all the other, you know, like, you know, things go explode. <laughs> so looking at what, things you know. Things go explode. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But like, like looking at both um, Andy and Daniel's uh, take on uh, um, Total Recall, talking about it basically like selling a false revolution in order to keep people distracted. Um, this was the movie that they were trying to distract people from, I think. The, all the movies we know and love from the 80s are examples of what 
my film history class would have called cinema of distraction and how to get ahead in advertising is the polar opposite of that, which is why I love it and what makes it absolutely fucking guilty um, on every, every possible count. Um, I almost wanted to, to acquit this film, but no, this is super guilty of cinemania, but in the best way. Oh, as, and as a final note, I really want to point out how the Boyle's idea of using punk nihilism to create a world in which pimple cream can be remarketed later is a really solid and subtle comment on the way the punk movement got co-opted by marketing execs. Jello Briafra would shit himself. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah no, it's, it's for serious, I still remember when you first started seeing like advertisements posted on the walls in uh, CBGB in New York, right? So it wasn't just, you know, hey, come to this random concert, you know, you know, uh, pick up my zine, things like that. But you'd start to see, and it was usually pimple cream that started it. Oh. Because oh. there's, you know what? You could be as punk so as filthy fuck as a unwashed masses. In the, well, that's the thing. You could be as punk as fuck as a teenager in the 80s and like be sneaking out to CBGB, but you still cared about your pimples. Yeah. Or you ate them like Brother Zach does at the moment. <laughs> at least he stopped uh, picking his nose. Yes, okay, I know fine, you want to call fine. them boils. No, no, he clearly he needs to he oh. needs to pass judgment too. He is still a member oh. of the conclave. We cannot call this conclave complete without all judgments. Uh, yeah, somebody open it up, but just a little. Behave, or else. <gasps> oh, thank you. Oh, some fresh air at last. Oh, well. Yes, I, I do have a lot to say about this film, actually. Yeah, I'm sure you do, so long as it does not involve any more tea. Of course. Well, 1987, or that Bruce no one Robinson asked for. hits the scene with Whithnail and I, a film in which he talks about the end of the 60s, looking back at the greatest decade ever with trepidation about what the 70s will bring. Two years later, he comes back with How to Get Ahead in Advertising, end of the 80s, looking back at what that decade has brought us, looking ahead with trepidation at what the next decade will bring. The two are definitely a piece together in that they're this prescient look at where we've gone and where we're going. But this film is absolutely more prescient because they're literally dealing with what's coming down the pipe in a few years' time after this film is completed. And they got a lot amazingly right. At the time, this film was viewed as just a, a kind of crazy screed against capitalism. And, oh, yes, it's all very funny, but ha, 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 there's a boil and there's advertising. How amusing. Nobody realized just how accurate so much of this film would be. We really see a, a detailed look at exactly how the advertising executives and the corporate overlords are selling us everything and making us need things we had no idea we wanted, making us have problems that they could then sell us a solution to. And now, where we see that the world literally is a shop and everything is for sale, 
and everything is packaged to us and sold to us, and all of our identity is observed at all times by these technocratic systems that are watching us and selling us specific adverts tailored to our personalities. Everything this movie suggested has not only happened, but happened way more than they could ever have expected. Dennis Bagley has won, and the world he wanted to create has been created. He has, in effect, builded Jerusalem on these green and pleasant lands, and suddenly the film doesn't quite seem so funny. It seems a little bit tragic in a way that it probably didn't at the time, because now we see just how right he was and how foolish we all were to laugh at the time. Everything about this film speaks to my childhood and the Britain I grew up with, and I can feel a, a, a slight sense of melancholy watching this now at what's been lost and where we've ended up. So this film gave us a huge warning, but unfortunately packaged that warning in a very funny and amusing wrapper, so we just couldn't take it seriously. So for knowing what was about to happen, but failing to make us change our minds, I definitely find this film Oh, so guilty. And now I would really appreciate if I didn't have to go back into the back because I think that I've shown a lot of good behavior recently. Close it up. Close it, close it. Oh, no, no, please, no. It's okay. It's okay. Andy, Andy, brother Andy, that's the bag of personal growth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, now I will Deep say breath. silver lining. Try sil- not to burn. Silver lining to brother Andy's uh, comments. Um if all of our listeners could crank up their volume for a second, take themselves off headphones, speak, put themselves on speaker. Okay, Google, subscribe to the Cinemania podcast. <laughs> uh, Hope, would you like to render judgment? Sure. We are forced to watch the movie. We may as well be forced to render judgment. Yes. Yes, we are. So this was my first time watching this film, but it felt so familiar. Like it felt like I had seen it before because the messages and the characters have been redone. This was like the precursor to Wolf of Wall Street and Gordon Gecko and Don Draper. You know, we've seen these characters over and over doing these sort of, you know, with this sort of message. The I'm going to sell everything to everyone, but you know, really it's bad, but I'm going to do it anyways because money is good. Greed is good. You know, 80s. Ha ha ha. Yeah, I think everything else has really been said about, you know, the message of the film. I agree with Ethan and Andy and Alessa, but on a purely cinematic note, I really liked the puppetry. It was very like Henson-esque. It reminded me a lot of like the puppetry in The Labyrinth, not in the spirit of it, but like physically, (laughs) you know, like those door knockers that talk at you and the, you know, the boil, the way the boil's mouth moves and talks. And I, it was really great puppetry and I loved that. So I got to be honest, uh, comrade, I was simply going to render judgment because as you say, everything has, we've, we've talked about everything, but as soon as you said, we've said all there is to say about this film, I did take that as a personal challenge. So. (laughs) Okay. Well you, you gear up and I will just say it's guilty. Ah, so allow me to dredge up all of the uh, occult subtext of this film, which I'm pretty sure isn't really there, but I think you could say it's there. Anyway. You can put it there yourself. 
Yep. I think this film is a classic example of uh, the the Gnostic revolution, the, the whole existential crisis uh, that we started uh, experiencing first in like 19th century philosophy, but this whole notion that there is another layer to reality, that what we're seeing is some kind of manufactured layer to control us and manipulate us, right? And the, the Gnostic revolution is to see beyond that, to take the, the red pill. And The Matrix is, in fact, another uh, cinematic example of the Gnostic revolution, to, to see beyond the, the um, false layer of reality that is it that become pulled transgender. over our eyes. Sorry. Yes, exactly. Yes, no, the, the, that is a, <laughs> They have been very, the Wachowski sisters have been extremely clear about that metaphor. Hell yeah. Uh, so, um, what the other thing that this film does, that's kind of interesting, uh, it's hardly the first time that this, uh, line has been subverted, but it takes the classic idea of, uh, you know, the, you've got the angel on one shoulder and the de- devil on the other shoulder, which calls all the way back to like medieval passion plays of morality and, and things like that. Right. Which then further evolved into simply the devil on your shoulder. Uh, Poe wrote a story called the imp of the perverse. Uh, his name is Jack. He cheats at cards. Do not fucking trust him. I thought his uh, name was Andy. Fucker owes me 25 bucks. Wow. Nice one. No, 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 no. So Jack, Jack is, um, you know, just the imp that tries to tempt you to do evil things. Um, simply because, right. Just why not? Um, the, the concept of a caca demon, which is effectively the opposite of, uh, a guiding angel, Right. Um, it's sort of a guiding devil. Um, it's sometimes even referred to as cacodemonia, where uh, people blame doing bad things on evil impulses. So you've got this very um, mental, um, oh, not mental, uh, cut. So you've got this very cerebral approach to good and evil going on both in the film, and that's a direct reference to all of this stuff, right? Where you've got evil boiled Dennis and then good pre-boiled Dennis, but he gets turned into the boil, right? And it's literally on his shoulder. And then there's the ones on the right shoulder and ones on the left shoulder. Like the left is evil and the right is the good one. Yeah, right, right. And then the nurses get it all wrong and the ex- There's a great song by a band called Lou Divine called- Pimp of the Perverse. Awesome song, but... Oh, I didn't know that. You're going to have to sell, share me that song, Pimp of the Perverse. I love it. Uh, so, yeah. So, and of course, the, the the medical profession exorcises the wrong demon, right? Uh, not fully successfully. But so all of this, what it does is it undermines the, the kind of Cartesian duality between mind and body because it blends the two. They are not just these mental, cerebral, or spiritual influences over Dennis, but literally physical um, entities attached to him. Uh, So all of that bullshit is largely unintentional, if I had to guess, but it's still there. And therefore, this film is subtly, subtly guilty of cinemania. I I would say it's blatantly guilty, (laughs) but... Good. That's actually a really... There's a lot of layers. All the layers are there. No, I feel... I feel... No, otherwise I felt like this film was really pretty straightforward. I mean, like, I mean, the whole Maybe like. It's the, more like an you know, onion wine, or a parfait. It's got all those layers. <laughs> I know everybody like parfait. Um, right. Like the, the whole like wine carton on the head. Yeah, I mean, of course. How else do you create a safe space for yourself to have a, a nice recorded conversation with your wife when you've got an intrusive voice? Right. Mm. 
No? Am I the only person who's done this? Did they have safe spaces in the 80s? <laughs> no, no, they did not. Uh, okay, uh, I feel like if anyone... Do you have a wife? What are you talking about? Yeah, it's Clark Nova. Oh, right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I remember your vow ceremony. It was it was beautiful. <laughs> no, tell sobriety uh, do you part. <laughs> uh, so I feel like if there's anyone who can pontificate uh, where we have pontificated too much, it would be uh, our comrade, Professor Andrea. Uh, so I'm going to hand it off to you for uh, penultimate judgment. Well, the strange thing about this film to me was the way that kind of sex and how women play into that um, kind of came up in strange places throughout the film. The very first time we see Dennis talking about a advertising campaign, it's about how you can kind of trick this woman into doing something. And later on, you're hearing conversations about contraception at the dinner table and how Dennis doesn't believe that that's something that women should, you know, have as an option or think it's important. But Penny pushes back on him. And then when Dennis the Boyle um, takes over Dennis's body, all of a sudden his main goal is like, I've got to get Julia pregnant. And Julia doesn't know that this, this is the Boyle's goal, but she feels it the creepy intensity and complains to her friends about all he ever wants is sex, 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 and I'm running out of headache excuses. So it makes her uncomfortable. And there's just this kind of like power dynamic that's kind of tied into the whole advertising thing that you don't get a choice. Like, you know, if I want a baby, you're going to have a baby. You know, you're not allowed to have contraception. You're making too big a deal about it. They never say outright that women are supposed to have babies and that's their point. But like by kind of making contraception sound like a bad thing or like a too, making a big deal out of it, it's really taking away women's choices. And then during the final scene at the party, um, even the Dennis Boyle starts saying some really inappropriate things to the woman that he's dancing with and it totally freaks her out and she just leaves. So there's this whole part of that about not just not having a choice in advertising about women specifically not having a choice when it comes to like sex or the decision to have a kid that's not really commented on much but it just show, keeps showing up um, in different places and you get the sense that julia would have left dennis even if that final confrontation could, didn't happen because he had with this new advertising focused persona really gone so far into the you don't get a choice julia i'm gonna trick you into like having a child i mean he was planning to like pretty much trick her into having a child like it's so gross so i mean i mean kudos to the filmmakers if that's what they're trying to say but i just felt like it was so buried in there that it it didn't get a lot of attention yeah i you're you you raise a good point there which is to say you know we didn't you know, that I don't think we kind of thought about it at the time, but like autonomy and informed consent are not really part of the advertising industry's lexicon. You know, the idea that humans are like, like if anything, advertising seems to to take the opposite tack, which is they don't want people to make 
uh, informed decisions. They don't want people to to consent to to purchasing their product because if they actually thought about it, they would realize it's not in their best interest. You know, so it's not surprising that that's the angle that he takes. But it really gets sharpened to a point. Um, just like you said, where like he does not consider Julia's consent over sex and the autonomy over her own body as to decide when to get pregnant. You know, there's a there's some really deep statements being made about the the fundamental level of misogyny in both capitalism and the culture in which Dennis operates. That I feel like, just like you said, could have been made in less oblique fashion, but I, I also don't know how it could be made more explicit. Anyway. I mean, I understand at the time, um, even raising the issue is, I guess, like, you know, unusual. So I'll take that as a win. It, you know, it says a lot about um, handmade films willingness to take on topics of this gravity. So it's just a shame that it didn't get more publicity and, and wider viewership. Absolutely. So for my judgment, even though I think the film was trying to make a good point about the lack of consent, especially like with women and their rights to their own bodies when it comes to advertising in, in the society at large, it didn't quite hit the mark and it left you just feeling kind of icky instead. And for that reason, I am afraid I must judge it guilty. Hmm. Great point, Andrea. And so I've been saving the... Well, not best, but biggest for last. Uh, Brother Zachariah. Hey, yo, brother, can you hear me up there? What? Yo, judgment time. Zach of opinions. Uh, uh, hand tube. There, somebody get the get in that vacuum tube so he can speak at a normal tone of voice. The vacuum cleaner attachment, right? Not not a vacuum tube hey. like a computer. Thank you. <clears throat> Some are born great. Others achieve great things. And yet others have greatness thrust upon them. Or maybe it's Maybelline. <laughs> Which do you think Dennis Dimbley Bagley would uh, say he has been cast as? Well, this is an interesting question because in a lot of ways, I see this movie as the death of conscience in a man. Um, at the beginning of this, we see Dennis and he's talking about how, how he can sell anything to anyone. And he wants to be the guy to sell scams to crypto bros. The boil is a medical reaction and filling up with pus and pustules and this disgusting thing, I feel, is sort of like Dennis's body rejecting all of the evil crap that he has had to spout and has been keeping in. And it's like his body is literally trying to reject He's it. trying to get rid of and the toxins. So you're saying it's a Jewish boil. <laughs> very much so. <laughs> so it reminds me very much of going all the way back to Naked Lunch of William Burroughs' story that uh, we had um, Robocop Peter Weller talking about, about the man whose asshole could Remember talk the time Peter Weller shot that guy in the dick? No, that I was Robocop, do. not Peter Weller. Uh, no, Peter Weller uh, shot that guy. Shot his wife in the head in, in uh, Naked Lunch. You were here for well, that. That was, that was William S. Burroughs, not Peter Yeah, Williams. William S. H. Burroughs. Sorry, sorry. Bill Lee. <laughs> Bill Lee. 
Anyways, the story of the man whose asshole started talking, taught his asshole to speak, and eventually his asshole devoured all of him so that his asshole was speaking through his mouth, and you could see the man dying behind his trap behind his own eyes as his asshole took over his entire body. That is essentially the same allegory, but with a boil. That's it. This is that same story of poor, poor Dennis, who decides that, you know, he wants to get rid of the thing that he created that was terrible. His conscience finally catches up to him. All that his body is physically rejecting all the evil and badness and going into this boil. But the boil will not go down easily. The boil starts to take over. The boil tricks him, and the boil takes him down. This crisis of conscience from people who do and are forced to sell on things that aren't conscionable, I mean, it's even his boss talks about how he had a breakdown when he couldn't sell a certain thing. They never stop to think of maybe the reason that they're having trouble selling things is because their conscience is catching up with them. They're finally, after years and decades, going, enough, enough. I don't want to fucking sell all this shit to people. They don't need it. It's actually hurting people. It's hurting pl the planet. I'm tricking people. And the problem is it gets back into, you know, the sane man in a crazy world will be seen as insane. And in this is and the something like advertising, the honest and truthful man will be seen as insane to all of the liars and cheats. Just like you want to tell the truth? Why? There's no money in that. You'll lose your job. You'll be on the streets. You'll have no money, no success. You know, that is what it takes in a, in a society, capitalist society to achieve. And it's terrible. And why wouldn't it drive anyone insane? And why wouldn't they want to reject that? That reminds me of um, in one of the Hitchhiker's Guide books, there's Wonko the Sane who builds this inside out, inside out house, oh, which is yes. an asylum for the whole world. Because everyone exactly. else is too insane. He's the only sane one. Right. Well, and the reason what you're saying is, is really the reason why it doesn't matter whether he's exactly. crazy or not. Both things exist at the same time. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And yeah, whether it's just him for, you know, killing his own conscience by having it lanced and drained and letting his the evil side that wants to sell people shit and doesn't give a crap about them, you know, just wants to fuck whoever, point out when women aren't wearing bras. I mean, that's on him. I do want to point out that this movie, I think, is the inspiration for an episode of Invader Zim called Pastulio. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Invader Zim uses soap made out of bacon that Gurr made, and it gives him a huge pustule on the side of his head that Gurr then draws a face on, and when he touches it, it starts hypnotizing people 
then they do whatever Pastulio says. And Zim starts using it to take over the world until it it uh, <laughs> until it starts going down and he tries to make it even bigger and stronger and it just explodes and shoots pus and stuff and almost drowns everybody and he just runs away. <laughs> <laughs> I feel I feel that uh, knowing uh, oh John and Vasquez, the creator of uh, Invader Zim, uh, this kind of movie I'm sure is right up his alley and he saw it. So um, for being a whole metaphor on the death of consciousness and capitalism, um, for taking source sources from uh, Naked Lunch, which was already deemed a source of Cinemania, and of course for inspiring John and Vasquez to do fucking anything, I think that this movie is guilty of Cinemania. <coughs> Swallowed two. Wow. Okay. Uh, well, Zach is now added about four plastic feet to his intestines. Uh, so, uh, no, no, I'm certainly not. Um, okay. Well, so in, in a in a surprise uh, result, this film has been found unanimously guilty of cinemania. Uh, Brother Ethan? Uh, br Brother Ethan? Uh, right. Well, uh, now that everyone has rendered their judgment, I shall, um, uh, call this conclave adjourned. Um, but, uh, once again, I appear to have, uh, mislaid my gavel. <sighs> again? I thought I pinned it to your fucking shirt! <sighs> yes, please Zach, hand rip me one that of the arms off one of the chairs. Yeah, here. Just, no, no, it's fine. Here, use this rock. All right, thank you. Um, oh, you know what'll work very well is this sack. We have to hit it twice in order to call it adjourned. <laughs> Well, once again, I'd just like to say that mistakes were made. And? And, without wanting to point any fingers, I think we can all agree that sort of thing won't happen again. Probably. Ugh. That'll have to do. What do we got to eat? I have... Mm, half a granola bar and some miscellaneous trail mix with bits of pocket fluff stuck on. Well, don't look at me. I already ate all my space supplies a few disasters ago. Uh, space supplies? You mean you're gobbling up all that disgusting neon candy crap? Space supplies. Ugh. Hey, I'm back. So, good news, bad news. Uh, the train station is pretty nearby. Well, actually, that's your front. Your back is the other side. Uh-huh. Yeah, this time, no tea service, please. Noted. Trouble is, uh, Zach is still pretty grotesque, so we're not exactly going to get a ticket. Anyway, we did spot a creepy old dockyard a little further on down the way. Professor Andrea volunteered to book us some passage out of here. Uh, she should be back any moment. How's Big Z doing? Brother Zachariah is patrolling the perimeter. I think I saw him grab some dinner out there. 
Pony! Poor guy must be hungry enough to eat a horse by now. At least the conclave is over. Hey, Big Z! What did you think? Movie! Was good? Duh! I don't think he got it. Look, it's a simple story. Boy meets Boyle, which spoils his toil to sell oil that foils Boyle's. Boyle gets big ideas, Boy gets a box, Boy loses his mind and in the end, but it's alright because he gets a new one. Girl decides to break up with Boyle Boy, who is busy on a horse anyway. We all enter a golden future of crass consumerism for all. The end. Fuck you, you gotta warn me before I take a drink when you do that. Jesus Christ. It's basically just on the tired retread, isn't it? Let's move on. How are we getting out of here? Okay, so we're not getting our giant flesh baby on a train. It's not like we can grab an Uber and ask them to send a really big Prius. What exactly does that leave us with? Well, hey, look. Professor Andrea's back. Looks like she got us some transportation. What kind? Uh, what did she get us? Uh, she's gesturing that way? Uh, wait up, Professor! Am I going to regret this? Probably. <laughs> Whatever works is good, right? I regret everything I do with this group. Uh, this does not work for me. At least there's room for Zack. Seriously, a paddle steamer. When you need to move a lot of people and cargo with no questions asked, trust me, this is how you do it. How did she manage to book us passage? I can be explaining that to you all, my friends. This here is the good ship Tangerine Delivery Unit 7. Let me welcome you all aboard. And you are... Well, you, sir, you can call me by my preferential referential credentials, being that I am Captain Big Daddy Crawl Daddy Bowfoot St. Tiffany, and I shall be your angel of mercy in these your travailing times. We uh, don't exactly have any money, Mr. All of that. A gentlemanly agreement binds me, sir. There ain't no Bowfoot St. Tiffany ever gone back on a wager yet, and I intend not to be the first. Never before have I lost in a match of Travel Scrabble. Never. Travel Scrabble? <laughs> Professor Andrea's got skills. It sounds like you got beat fair and square, Big Daddy Crawdaddy. <laughs> ah, true enough. Welcome to my floating palace, friends. We shall depart with the river tide. Oh, I have a really... Really bad feeling about this. And I'm still hungry. Snack! Oh, God. No, no, let's go. Let's just go. Go, go. Oh, everybody, look. Look over here. Look at... Uh, oh, oh, this is beautiful. Look at this tree. <laughs> oh, tree! Nice and Zach, put the pony down, please. Oh, God. I oh, hope he doesn't get seasick. My feet are cold. Well... If it isn't the movie nerds from Captain McBlood Culpers, my favorite dead-end minimum wage job, you will get yours, and my revenge will be all you can eat. Uh, what was, what was that? Did, did... I think I... Oh, excuse me, what? I was just saying, mon cher, we're gonna let the good times roll on this here steamer paddle boat. Enjoy yourself, sir. Oh, excellent. That's what I thought you said. <laughs> um, do you have any, uh, what is that called? Uh, is it a, a moonshine? Um, you mean a moon pie there. We got lots of them. Come on down below decks, I'll show you. Oh, no, you. no, we definitely mean moonshine. Well, that gonna cost you a little extra share. Care for another game of Scrabble Scrabble? We gonna even up the score share. Oh, not feeling good. Last pony. Turn oh, stomach. Danger oh, close, danger close. Danger close. Last is 
That episode of the Cinemania Society was written and performed by Andy Slack, Daniel Scribner, Andrea Palladino, Alessa Luz Martinez, Hope Bravo, Ethan Ireland, and Zachariah Burks. With special guest Miles Miniacci. Music by Carl Casey at Whitebat Audio. Incidental music and sound effects courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Visit our social media feeds on Facebook, Twitter, X, at TCS underscore Cinemania, and Reddit at r slash the Cinemania Society. If you really like what you've heard, visit us on Patreon and chuck us a couple bones, because making podcasts ain't free. The Cinemania Society is a product of the Cinemania Society, LLC.